Hi friends, this is Josh from the Narrate team. This weekend, Adam approaches Easter from an emotional angle and asks the question, if God could raise Jesus from the dead, why doesn't he do more and highlights Jesus' already not yet kingdom? Hi. (laughs) So, uh, this is why we don't organize small groups. Because this is what happens when you try to take things that happen organically and fit them into a system. What I'm referring to is we, we asked a lot of people like, hey, would you come to the 1130? Because that historically is the one that nobody attends. And so you are all such a compliant bunch that <laughs> thank you very much for that. Uh, my name's Adam. If I've not met you before, I get the chance of being on staff around here. And if you're going, didn't you wear that on Christmas? The answer is yes. Um, <laughs> The problem with OCD is you can't find very many things you like, and so when you find them, you just go with them. I I worked very hard, and just OCD kicked in. You know, where I want to start this morning, and it might feel like a thud, but you're going to have to trust me. I want want to just start pointing out something that you've already seen, of course, and that that is that that with any good news, uh, there's complementary bad news. And sometimes that just makes you Debbie Downer, but sometimes it's just true and honest and sincere. You know, the fact, uh, as you're flipping through your Facebook feed, you don't flip through it. As you scroll through your Facebook feed when you are getting paid good money and they're not paying you to play, watch Facebook, but nonetheless, as you do that and you see a friend from college who's engaged, I mean, that's good news. And yet it's also a reminder that, that you're not, right? And you swore you would be by now or you were, and that all crashed. You're single again. Maybe even someone passed. Or, or the fact that you got the job, great news, right? Like, it's great news. And yet an honest uh, person, I suppose, has to acknowledge that that means that there's a guy and a gal who, who didn't get the job. Uh, I, I'm going to assume that many of you like to watch athletics, and if you don't, then you can just humor me. But uh, to me, one of the more confounding things about watching professional athletes and all of their sincerity is to watch someone take the podium after a game or get the microphone thrust on their face after a game and to hear them say uh, they're just so thankful to God for giving them the win. And again, like, great gesture. Love the heart behind that. But, but the implications are kind of troubling, aren't they? Because the implications would say that, that God opted to give them the win and not them the win, and it's why I don't envy Christ-following athletes, because what's the right thing to say then? Now, again, I know that's a downer, and it's Easter, and just to be clear, I, like many of you, think this is the most important day, or at least we are celebrating, it's the anniversary of the most important event in human history. And lest that suggestion offend you, I think that that's true whether you believe it or not. Whether you believe that the resurrection literally happened, and Christ physically, not in a ghost, not in a metaphor, like physically walked out of the tomb alive, whether you think that's true or not... The implications are huge. If it's true, it's a game changer. And if it's not true, it's also a game changer. And so it's not that the value of that is lost on me. In fact, uh, just to be self-absorbed and honest, the most intimidating day on my calendar is Easter Sunday. It's like, how, how do you even begin to do justice to the significance, the importance, the meaning the theology. I mean, it's like, hey, could you introduce the president and you get 10 seconds? I mean, how do you even begin to touch that? And so just in case this is your first Easter with us, the the way I think about this is over the course of however many times I get to do this, it's going to take all of those times to begin to even begin to even do justice to the meaning of Easter. So two years ago, uh, we looked at Jewish theology and Jewish history, and we talked uh, with the aid of a goat and a high priest. You may remember that. 
We talked about Easter from a very Jewish historical standpoint. What was going on there, especially as it related to their festival calendar? Uh, So that was an Eastern perspective. Last year, we took a very Western perspective. And the question we wanted to ask last year was, okay, from a historicity standpoint, is the resurrection even remotely possible? Like, you all assume Julius Caesar existed, but the reason that that's a safe assumption is because there's good historical evidence that he did. None of us can prove that he did because he's not here. What we wanted to ask was the question, did, did the resurrection happen? Was there a Christ? Was his name Jesus? Did he actually get crucified? Was he actually dead when he was placed in the tomb? And when he walked out, was there hallucinations that happened or was there a physical body? And we explored in depth, in, in large part, thanks to Lee Strobel and the Case for Christ and other resources that we love to point you to. This morning, this morning's a little bit different. This morning, I want to look at Easter from an emotional standpoint because I think in the midst of suffering and grief, In the midst of just living in this world, there's another question that we have to deal with when you look at Easter, and it's simply this, if God did that, and that that means he can do that, that's great news, right? But then why doesn't he do it more? And why didn't he do it for her? And why didn't he do it for him? And why won't he do it for me? We're going to stick our toe, if you will, in this incredibly important and powerful and impossible question that deals something, goes something like, if there's a good God, then, then why is there so little good in the world? And I think one way to look at that honestly is to look at the life of a guy named Jairus. Jairus, uh, of course, uh, lived in the time of Jesus, and we first meet Jairus, and when we first meet him, actually, we're told that his life was, he had a pretty simple life, a very simple existence. See, Jairus, uh, he lived in a, in, a, in a village of 300 people. He was the leader of a synagogue and presumably the owner of some small business. He led a synagogue that probably his dad and granddad did before him. Hey, we've got a seat right here if someone wants it. Anybody? How's that for awkward? Uh, <laughs> Seriously, though, like, you can't just sit there. Okay, well, you guess you can. Uh, so Jairus led the synagogue. Uh, he, he owned this business. He had this simple life. He had a wife. He had kids. He lived in the northern Galilee. It was all very simple until a guy named Jesus moved to his village. Jesus, of course, relocated from a place called Nazareth to this, the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, a city called Capernaum. And when he moved there, Jairus' life got complicated. Because Jairus was the boss, you know, he was the leader. He, he was the one that people looked to. He was the elder. He was the one that it was very important, believed the right things, did the right things, maintained the right reputation, because he did, it wasn't just about him. He stood on his father's shoulders. He stood on his father's shoulders. There was a lot of pressure on Jairus. And suddenly Jesus made that complicated because Jesus was hit, sitting on the heat register at synagogue, you know? And suddenly there were all these murmurs that were happening in town. Because the village people understood that Jesus being in town and teaching the kingdom of God, that was scary for them. Because that meant Herod Antipas, when word got back to him that this Jesus was now hanging out in Capernaum, and it was this Jesus who was teaching about a different kingdom, a better kingdom, that he was the king, that Caesar wasn't, these types of ideas, they understood. They'd seen this script before. That means that what Herod Antipas has to do as the steward of this part of the Roman colony was send a legion of troops into Capernaum, crush their buildings, kill their men, crucify them would be the most common form. And there we have many historical instances of them crucifying all all the men in a community, especially those who associated themselves with an uprising. And then they would rape and maim and enslave uh, the women and the children that remained. And so the town was nervous. Wait a minute, what's Jairus going to do about that? Then, Then you had the local experts in the law. They were ticked. Because this Jesus was, was deluding and denuding the entire teaching of Judaism in their perspective. And they wanted to know, what was Jairus going to do about that? Then, 
Then there were the agents. Uh, we would call them agents in our culture today. There were the guys sent from Jerusalem, and they were there to protect Rome. They were there because the, the Jews understood that this was not good for their own uh, security. And so they were there, and really what they were doing was investigating the case to build an indictment so that they could deal with Jesus. So suddenly Jairus had a lot to lose. Suddenly all that he was stewarded with became very apparent. And so Jairus did what probably a lot of people in his day did. He opted for neutrality. Keep your head low. Watch and see what this Jesus is up to. See where this thing leads. Don't go forward. Don't go against. Just kind of, just, just chill out. And that was a good strategy until, until his daughter got sick. He had a 12-year-old daughter. Uh, prior to her getting sick, they were making final arrangements for her wedding ceremony because that's the thing that, that men did for their daughters when they got to this age in this culture. But before he knew it, she had influenza A, and influenza A quickly proved to be more than just an inconvenience. It proved to, to be quite an illness, and before long, she was on her deathbed. And now you have a man with a daughter who inexplicably, subconsciously was planning for his daughter's funeral not her wedding ceremony. Now, we don't know what, what exactly his approach was going to be. What we do know was word got back to him that Jesus of Nazareth was back in town, having returned, I don't know, from a teaching expedition, from a fishing trip, we don't know. But he got back to town, and Jairus, without warning, sprinted across town, threw himself at Jesus' feet, and said the same thing every father, every parent, every friend would say in this situation. Hey, Jesus, please... Do something. Mark records it this way. My little daughter is dying. I suppose every father in the room could probably read that with more emotion. Please come and put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. And the response in the text, I think, is ironic because it's what we can find to be so offensive. Listen to the way the narrator says it. Go ahead, next slide. So Jesus went with him. So off they go to deal with this horrendous situation, but on the way they're interrupted, and they're interrupted by another desperate person. This one, a woman, not a man. This one, an adult woman, not rep being represented or representing herself, her problem. And the use of the word, the number twelve here, is probably on purpose. Her problem was she had a twelve-year uncontrollable menstrual bleeding problem. Problem. Her problem was there's nothing any doctors could do to help her. And as if that weren't complicated enough, she lived in a culture where to have that kind of an issue, it wasn't just a physical issue, it was a spiritual issue. See, what we know about this woman is she didn't tell anybody about it. Because had she told them about it, she wouldn't be a resident of Capernaum anymore. She'd have been a resident of some leper colony somewhere, the equivalent of our prisons and mental institutions. She would have been excommunicated, and not just her, her husband and her kids would have been ripped out of school. His business would have failed. She would have went there. This woman had the moxie to just not tell anyone. Now, Luke tells us, I believe it's Luke, that she got some help elsewhere, but apparently that was kept a secret, and she had a plan. She'd been in synagogue and she had heard from the book of Malachi that when the Messiah comes, according to Malachi, he would have healing in his wings. Now, the Hebrew word there is kanaf. And the idea here, uh, the kanaf refers to the tassel of a rabbi's prayer shawl. They would have worn it like a white Hanes t-shirt, would have had these tassels hanging from the corners. She believed that if she could just brush up against him in a crowd, touch the tassel, she would be healed. And so she arranged 
on this day when they're kind of ushering the Pope through town, if you know what I mean, like here's this mob of people and they're all going to Jairus' house, she decided she would just split the difference, kind of walk through the middle of them, touch the tassel, and all would be well. And in fact, it was. Her plan worked. Mark, he tells us in chapter 5, immediately her bleeding stopped. And she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Notice the compassion there. Phase one was done, but she still had a whole other important part of her plan. See, short term, to admit she had this issue would have the same impact as admitting she had it before she was healed. To admit that she had been healed would have the same impact. Because the community would have still excommunicated her until she could prove that she was healed. Now imagine the bitterness and the resentment of a woman who, in their perception, had sullied their community and their schools and their synagogue and their places for 12 years. You can imagine there wouldn't be much mercy for her. So she had to get away undetected, unknown. And her plan was working marvelously until Jesus suddenly went like, wait a minute. Somebody just touched me. Somebody touched me. And these guys are like, are you kidding me? Like, do you have any idea how hard it is to run security for you? Of course someone touched you. You're in a mob of people. He said, no, 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 someone, someone touched me. And we can't explain why she turned around. She didn't have to. Maybe it was that thing that happens to our conscience when God just won't let us keep running. And she turned around and listened to the response she got from Jesus. He said, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now, Mark's like you. He has ADD, and he's just going to keep going because rather than this kind of hallelujah moment, the text shifts back to Jairus because just in that moment, a guy returns from Jairus' house, and he kind of interrupts the whole deal and goes, hey, hey, Jairus, bad news. Your daughter's dead. She's dead. So just leave the rabbi alone. Now, some guys, some commentators liken this guy to an accountability partner because what he's done is he's shown up, shown up to Jairus and went, hey, J- Jairus, You just flushed your entire life down the toilet in your association with Jesus. You just went all in in your desperation. Retract, and we'll forgive you. Like, she's dead. It's, uh, yeah, we get it. We'll all kind of, we all have compassion. Like, yeah, yeah, you were in a desperate moment. Like, who could blame you? A father in those circumstances would try anything. Just part ways. Jairus is at a, a proverbial fork in the road. And Jesus, in his compassion and wisdom, look at what Jesus says to him. He says, don't be afraid. Just believe. Now, for the longest time, I thought that referred to the death of his daughter. It doesn't strike me as being the case the more I look at it. He's going, hey, Jairus, you stand to lose a lot. Don't be afraid. Come on. And Jairus goes all in like a poker player. All the chips are on the table. And he starts making his way to his home. Now, Jesus disbanded the crowd, something that they were cooperative with because they didn't want to be in a house where there was a dead body anyway. And as they got close, they would have known it. But because in this culture, they understood that it's important to give full vent to your grief. And in a culture where they didn't have the modern medicine that we have, death would have visited a home often. And so they would have, what they did is they employed professional grievers who showed up with their flutes and their loud voices, and they raised a ruckus. And the idea was this, you guys. The idea was... If we can create enough false noise, then the family will give full vent to their grief underneath the cover of those decibels. It's kind of why we push the decibels in this room and are always looking for ways to push it more. Because we know that a dude who can hear hear himself singing is a dude who doesn't sing anymore. (laughs) Same idea. And so they get close. And Jesus shows up. And here's here's these professional wailers. And Jesus just says to them, hey, Guys, what are you doing? She's, she's just sleeping. 
And they're kind of playing games because she's dead and they know it and they've already dealt maybe with some of the symptoms of rigor mortis. Who knows? And he walks in, which again is an incredible, there's another commentary because he just walks into the presence of a dead body. He's just pushing through all these kind of false walls. And he grabs a little girl by the hand and he says simply, hey little girl, get up. Now can you imagine what's happening in Jairus in this moment? N.T. Wright points out that the historical account is probably validated all the more by the fact that she said in that moment what only a teenager would say in that moment. Hey, can I get some food? <laughs> First thing she said is, hot pocket? Like, I've been dead for a while. Anybody got a corn dog? Like, come on. And Jesus walks away. But here's the problem, right? Back to our original question. Because in the midst of the the beauty of Jairus' daughter, in the midst of the healing of this bleeding woman, if we park long enough, there's a question. And in fact, there's several questions like, okay, so God, why not all the other Jairuses? Why were there still funerals in your day if you had this capacity? What about all the other bleeding women? What about all the other people who didn't have the amenities of modern medicine? What about them? See, it gets to this question. Sometimes we reject Jesus or just keep, can turn it into a religious game, not because it's not possible, but because it's not fair. Sometimes, and maybe far more often than we care to admit, it's, it's not a, I can't believe that thing. It's a, I can't accept a God on those grounds because that sounds nothing like justice to me. And those, those become heavy, honest, sincere oh man, we got to work on this for a while questions. Now, one way to potentially go after it and related to these questions is the last statement in Mark's story. Look at the very last sentence. He says this. You can't look. You can't even move your elbows. Let me read it to you. Um, <laughs> he, he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and then told him to give her something to eat. So he's like, don't tell anybody and get the girl a hot pocket for crying out loud. Now, why? why? And this comes up over and over and over again in the Gospels. Well, what scholars will point out, of which I am not one, I just plagiarized them, is that what's going on here is Jesus, Jesus didn't come to be a one-man emergency medical team. He didn't come to be a one-man liberation army. He came for something very specific. These were signposts. They were pointing to a destination. But the destination and the signposts are two different things. These were signposts, but the signposts can't be confused with the destination. See, what goes on within this conversation is the realization that Jesus knew that had he been confused for a one-man liberation army, had he been confused for an emergency medical team, then he would have been taken out long before he could get to the cross. And the cross was where he was headed. Because Jesus came to take on evil in its most base, maniacal form. He came to take on death. And he was going to work backwards from that point. And after he went to the cross, and after he walked out of the tomb, a living, breathing human once again, there was no more like, hey, don't tell anybody. There was, hey, go tell everybody. And Christ's followers have been wrestling with the implications of that ever since. Okay, so it's good news, right? God can do that. But why doesn't he do more? And if he can do that, then, then what's a cancer cell? What's a tumor? What's a, what's a struggling marriage? See, an, an honest assessment of the text reminds us that, that Jesus' kingdom was, 
what some scholars simply call an already not yet kingdom. He claimed victory over the thing that had been ruining God's good creation from the very beginning. But what he said is it's already. You can have an eternal quality of life now, but it's not yet. The tentacles of evil aren't done yet. See, already, already is the transformation you've experienced, even though your circumstances haven't, but Jesus entered into them. Already, it's the fact that your marriage is in a completely different place now that he's following Jesus, or now that you're following Jesus. Already is the fact that you can somehow figure out how to do life despite your depression, along with the anxiety, along with the PTSD, along with whatever that thing is. The already is a group of people who go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's not that we have way, a whole bunch of extra stuff, but let's pool like the first 10 or so percent of our stuff and let's create this outpost in our community where people can understand who God is minus all of the religious stuff. And let's, let's use some of that to like do an Easter egg hunt on Mount Helena just so that people can kind of go like, wait a minute, who is this Jesus and what do you guys think about him? The already is, is a person going, wait a minute, you mean to tell me there's a person in Ecuador who doesn't know sign language and that are deaf? I can do that. We can do that, the already, it's the peace you feel, even though you're doing chemotherapy. But the not yet, it's the abuse. It's the memories. It's the tumor. It's the fact that adultery is still adultery is still adultery, and it hurts. It's the fact that you're still unemployed. It's the fact that you still have financial difficulty. It's the fact that the mortality rate stays right at 100%. That every person who experiences love will experience grief. And it's a very proportional experience. See, Jesus, he's not naive. He says, hey, in this world, there, there's still going to be some stuff. But tell you what, here's what you can know. The enemy is defeated. I've won. And the invitation of Christ is not peaceful circumstances, it's peace despite circumstances. You know, like many of you, I, I wrestled with this question. I was working through uh, a guy's commentary on, on Genesis chapter 3 recently, and he, he, makes, he alludes to the idea that the Bible never explains where evil came from. And that was unique to me. And in fact, he even says what Christ followers most often do is they say God created people free. And if you're going to create someone free, then you're also going to leave open the possibility of evil, which may make sense, but the Bible never explicitly says that. And so I emailed him, figured out he was a professor at Fuller in California uh, and emailed him. Just like, might as well take a chance, right? And so emailed him and, and he emailed me back w within the day. And he's like, yep, that's exactly what I'm saying. So I emailed him the next question and you're probably already a step ahead of me. I said, okay, so... Like, what does, this does it tell us then about the existence of evil and where it comes from? And I'll, I was walking away from lunch with a friend at the Silver Star, and he was like reading this, this email, and, and I just want to show it to you. It was just two sentences. Go ahead to that slide. He said, the source of evil is the question which the scriptures don't deal with. They are more interested in what God and we are doing in response to it. Now, that's not completely satisfying, is it? But I would argue it's completely honest that on Easter, the invitation is God doesn't like it either. And he's vested his blood in the solution to the problem. And the spotlight flips and it says, lest you just point a finger at it, what are you investing into the problem? How much are you giving of yourself? 
I think Jairus reminds us that it starts internal, that all of our stories are like Jairus, because all of us stand a lot to lo- stand to lose a lot in our association with Jesus. All of us, all of us are like the bleeding woman, because to be any kind of solution to the problem has a prerequisite, and the prerequisite is to, con- to first confess you have one, and that it's alive and active in you, and that you give vent to it all too often. Easter is the promise of God that he's committed to do everything he can about evil up to the point of his son. And it's the invitation to be a part of that with him by first and foremost having the power of his resurrected son in all of us. I guess I want to leave you with this question. As you look out across the landscape of your life and the struggles, no matter how trivial or or just real, is they're real to you, so they're not trivial. Whether you're struggling with, with being a parent or you're looking at a tumor and a two-year diagnosis, whether you're struggling with, with depression or anxiety or PTSD or you're struggling with, man, you can't lose 30 pounds, whatever it is, what, what, what happens when you frame it with Jesus' already not yet perspective? And you simultaneously embrace his hope, his power, and his honesty knowing full well, yeah, 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 it's, it's broken, I'm broken, but we're moving forward. And his power gets the last word. Listen, I don't know what preconceived notions you showed up with as it relates to Jesus. I know we all showed up with them, and any kind of alteration to them is, is a process. And I guess that's really what we're about as being a church together, is constantly doing the work of the process. We'd love for you to join us in that. I'd like to pray. God, again, Lord, the simplicity and the complexity of, of your resurrection is in one sense numbing and in another sense overwhelming. God, I'm thinking of all the inadequacy that's felt in this room right now, all the failure, all the grief, all the frustration, all the sadness. thanks, Jesus, uh, that you invite us into this paradoxical hope of your resurrection. We love you. Amen. If you would like to engage further with Narrate Church, you can find contact information online, www.narratechurch.org. We would love to hear from you.